showing you more intimately that that um, even as so many farmers are out seeding this morning, that that your seed would find its way into the hearts of, of people who are here and that they would uh, experience new life and growth and bear fruit in keeping with salvation. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We will start the time. Uh, I have a, a short little video clip. Before I get to it, I want to talk for a second about uh, about authority. Um, I... I uh, I didn't learn this. I didn't understand it until I came to Big Sandy, and I'd been here for a few years. Uh, and I came to understand it in the context of marriage uh, originally, but it applies to everything. Um, when an individual stands in a place of authority scripturally, all right? So, like, um, I am a husband and father, and so to some degree I have authority in my home, right? We have a room full of moms and some coming up to be mom soon. Uh, who uh, have authority in their families as a representative of God, right? Um, or Pastor Eric or whatever. Like um, authority scripturally is a, like standing in God's place because God is the source of all authority. And so as a pastor, if I'm here and I am like uh, acting with authority, I'm doing so on God's behalf. Um, the moment I step away from God's will, that is it. Uh, I already, I got another one and drank it. I don't need another cup this morning. But thank you, dear. She finds everything I lose. No, I didn't find it. Oh, thank you, Gabe. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, as, as a pastor, like, I, I have a degree of authority when I stand in God's place. If I step out of God's place and I do my own thing, authority is gone, right? Because I don't have any authority Fathers, mothers, none of us have authority. God has authority. But we have roles to play where we stand in that stream of God's intent and God's purpose. Is everybody following me? Um, and so, like, if I announce sin to people or if I um, pray for someone and I'm praying in harmony with God's will, I, I pray with authority and I speak with authority. If I speak of sin that is sin I picked out and decided was sin, like going to the movies, right? Sinful. Uh, it's not, uh, just certain movies. Anyway, um, then, then I step out of God's authority. If I apply my own standard and step away from God and try to wield that authority on my own, it's nothing. Now, why am I talking about this? Because it is Mother's Day. And, um, there's an interesting idea. Again, I discovered this years ago. I figured it out, um, where the Ten Commandments, we all know the Ten Commandments, right? You've heard them, Right? The Ten Commandments sort of are the beginning of this God's authority thing as it relates to parents. The, the commandments are divided into two parts. Have you all heard this before? Right? The, the first four relate to God. The last six relate to men. Right? And the first one is, you know, have no other gods. Honor God. Right? God is number one. He is the only God. Only God like that is it. And then when you get to the first one relating to how we interact with each other as people, does anybody know what the fifth commandment is? Honor your father and mother. The reason being that for the first X number of years of a child's life, they have no idea about anything. And it gets worse when they become teenagers. And right at about 45, like we start to get it back together again. 
Um, but like they don't really understand things and understanding who God is is very difficult. And so parents act as placeholders for God in a very real way. They demonstrate God's love for their children. They demonstrate God's authority. They teach them moral right and wrong. They point to God the whole time, but they stand in the middle. There's a great quote. I can't tell you who said it, but mother is the word for God on the lips and in the hearts of all children. Um, I'll give you a bonus point if you can come up to me after the service and tell me where I heard that. Um, don't Google it, uh, please. Um, but that means that parents have a huge responsibility on them because they stand in God's place, right? And oftentimes as children grow up, they begin to see God according to their parents' behavior. So like if dad was absent, disappeared from the home and was never there, people often believe that God is ready to abandon them. If dad was overindulgent, a lot of times people see God as um, like Santa Claus. Uh, if God uh, or if parents are angry and abusive, a lot of times they perceive like folks grow up to perceive God as angry and vengeful. And like like so you can distort your child's perception of God. And so you carry a great deal of weight as mothers. Right. Um, and I have a really neat video. All right. Um, to kind of illustrate this idea. This is a California condor. I am not comparing mothers to buzzards. <laughs> Don't jump to that conclusion. That's not what I was doing. Um, at the time that California condors were like identified as a critical species, there was about 20 of them left in the world. They collected up all of them and brought them to zoos and bred them in captivity. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and bred them in captivity. Now, the tricky part with that is condors are huge. They weigh like 20 pounds, right? Again, not comparing mothers to buzzards. Um, but these big birds, they could accidentally crush the eggs or the, or the babies. And so they made the decision, we are going to take the eggs away and incubate them. And when they hatch, we are going to feed them separately until they are large enough to intermix with the other condors. Everybody with me still? Um, the problem being that condors imprint on the first thing they encounter, just like uh, velociraptors. Um, so, like, if the very first thing a condor sees is a human being, and that condor is eventually released in the wild, it won't be afraid of people, which is about the dumbest thing an endangered species can do, Right? Like, like they need to be afraid of people and they need to learn to socialize with other condors. And most of the socialization is imprinted in the early years. And so this video in, in California, these condors, let's see if it works for me. They would feed these baby condors with a puppet. Like, so they had this condor puppet and they would deal with all. Oh, is it going to work? Ah, it worked. I learned how to do this this morning. You see, this, it doesn't even really look like a condor puppet. I mean, like a condor, it looks like a puppet. But you can go online, you can see all kinds of videos where they play with the baby condor. And they have little, like, feathers that they'll rub it with so that it gets used to it. Or where the baby condor, so this is the person outside, like, in disguise... And the baby condor will, like, compete with the mother for food. And they'll pull it, like, little bits of meat and stuff like that. And it's really neat because they, what they're doing is they're training this baby condor to understand what other condors are. And it's, that's, I mean, it's cool, right? Like, this is a really neat thing. Now, as it relates to us, we're going to be 
I skipped over a few verses from the Athens sermon, which is great because the sermon would have been like super ridiculous long had I not done that. Um, we're going to be closing out this little chunk of text that I missed. Um, but what's going on at this point, we're going to pick up where I left off, um, where I missed, and we're going to talk about this idea of idols because Paul begins to really address idolatry. And what's going on at this point is um, he acknowledges, hey, guys, God made you to look for him and to know him and enjoy him. But because of sin, because of brokenness, because the Jewish people were meant to tell you about who Yahweh is and they sort of didn't, um, like all of these things happened. And so they didn't know God. And so people naturally gravitated to other things. And they began to look around for where God is because we are idol-making people. We are designed to have God as a part of our lives, and we look for God. Um, We are inclined to hate the God of the universe because of our sinful natures, but there's a part of us that desires to know him. And that's what Paul said in the last week, and we'll touch on that just briefly. Um, And so we're going to dig into this idea of, of, of idols because ultimately the puppet you know, the little condor puppet, it's not a real condor. And like, if the condor, baby condor grows up and all it wants is the puppet, condors are doomed, right? Um, If mother stands in God's place and a child grows up and never comes to know the real God, but idolizes their family relationships in that place, that's a problem, right? Um, You end up with kids who live in their mom's basements their whole lives and Everything else is no good. Um, and so, like, we're going to dive into this. The main point um, here is we're going to talk about idols. And here's the deal. It's easy to exchange the worship of God for the works of his hands, right? There's so many beautiful and amazing things God has done and made for us and that he is. We're even able to, like, turn God into something else. Sometimes we'll look at him and say, oh, God is really like this. And we'll turn him into something else so that we can worship ourselves, or like some false god, like using God's name. And so like, like in Jesus, though, we encounter God face to face. Idols ultimately were a poor imitation of the real God. And like um, we're going to talk a little bit about moms. We're going to talk a little bit about condors. Um, but that is the big idea here. And so as we dive into the text, my first point in the text, and I'll point it out when we get there, is that people were designed to know God and enjoy him. We were like, like in our ignorance, however, we worship stuff. If I never encounter God, right? How can they know if they have not heard? Right? I don't know what God is. Or I do now. I, you know, praise the Lord. But there are like for, for millennia, there were people who like, there was no like like spreading of the gospel. There was no spreading of um, the, the, the commandments of the law or anything. People did not know God. And so they worshipped things. And they pursued things because that's what they did. Um, Acts 17, 27 to 28. This is uh, the last little bit of last week's sermon. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, meaning God made us this way and we pursue him. But if we have nothing to see or hear or learn, we grasp on to other things because they look like God, right? Mom looks like God to little kids, right? And it's a great, one of the worst and best lessons I learned as a parent was understanding that my children treat me the way I treat God sometimes. When I look and say, but so-and-so got what he wanted, why can't I? 
Or I say, child, empty the dishwasher, and I get a 30-minute tantrum, right? And, and sometimes God says, Eric, do these things. And I say, God, I don't want to do those things. I want to do my thing. And my attitude is no different than my children. Um, and so there's a great bit of lessons there. Moms, tell me I'm wrong, right? Uh, but we pursue other things. And even the ancient poets and philosophers, for in him we live and move and have our being. These guys are not talking about Yahweh, but they're talking about like logic, the logos. And they're not understanding who God is because they have never encountered him, but they get something dead on the nose right about who God is. And Paul draws it out, right? Um, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I'll tell you, in the original context, the poet is talking about Zeus, right? And he quotes a poet talking about Zeus because the poet had the idea, but he had no idea who Yahweh was. He had no idea who Jesus was. And so he pointed this like like ideal version of things at something that was not God in the same way as the condor puppet, right? It's not a real condor. It looked pretty realistic. Um, it wasn't a Muppet, but, you know, but, but it convinces this baby condor. And we, in our lostness, we pursue things that are not God, and we're fooled by them, and we imprint on them, and we fall in love with them, and we chase after them. Uh, Paul goes on, he says, therefore, this is actually where I stopped covering the text, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as or excuse me, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. Now, there's a really fancy theological argument that Paul, or philosophical argument Paul is making here, and I'm not going to unpack it all. Okay, like I, I'm just not. It's too much. And it sort of draws us away from where we're going, and nobody here is a Stoic or an Epicurean. <laughs> just DJ in the back. Thank you, Mr. Bond. Um, so it doesn't really matter. I, I will tell you the short version. It is a thing made by hands, therefore it cannot be God. And it cannot be an accurate reflection of God because it's something that came out of me. Does that make sense? Um, that's the short version. So moving right along. The point being here, Paul's like, listen, since we're God's offspring, since we came out of God, it cannot be the case that something we make is God. It cannot even be close. But people continue to search for that thing that's missing, that empty place. As Pascal put it, like inside of every man is a God-shaped hole that only God will fill. I am paraphrasing. I cannot give you the accurate quote. But the idea being that we were designed to be in communion with God and we suffer for our separation. Um, I found a great line from an author named Foster. He said, um, the men who built the pyramids worshipped loathsome insects and animals. The Phoenicians who invented letters chained the image of their gods to their altars that they might not abandon them. The cultured men of Rome made important plans by Agurus derived from, by, excuse me, by uh, ideas, or I don't understand what the word there is, I'm sorry, I'm not that well read, um, by, by divinations or by predictions derived from the entrails of sheep um, or the flight of birds. And actually, that is the truth. The Romans would do that. They would cut up a sheep before they went into battle, and you'd have a guy whose job it was to read sheep guts. Um, that would be John in our church. Uh, goat, goats, not sheep, I guess. Um, or they'd look at birds and they say, oh, look, that bird went that way. That means we're going to win. You know, and 
like this is how they planned. But they looked for things that were gods. Um, Plutarch thought that the souls of men were made out of the moon and would return to it. Plato and Seneca thought the stars required nourishment and were eager for pasture. Um, what's the point of this? Why did I read it to you? It is because we as men who, like when we're separated from God, when we do not know him, when we're in our sinful selves, we will naturally look for things to worship. Because deep ingrained in us is this idea that God is there. His fingerprints are all over us. He is the father we desire, the perfect father. He's the, the, the nourishing mother that like loves us no matter what and takes care of us when we're injured or hurt or lost. Like God, God is that. And we experience glimpses of it as children watching our parents, although a lot of times those glimpses are horribly destroyed and distorted, but it is what we're designed to pursue. I'm going to open my soda here, sorry, because my mouth is dry. I thirst for more. Um, so the next point, so like, first off, we talked about this idea that we're designed to worship God and we, in our ignorance, we worship things that are not God. We worship the creation. We worship the puppet. Um, idols though are a poor substitute and a bad imitation for the real God who created everything and watches over his people. Um, when you really look at what the idols of the ancient world and what the idols in our lives are, they're the nailed it version of God, Right. They're just awful. There's nothing about them that makes them desirable, ultimately. Um, and to give you a couple of highlights from Scripture, because I think I had a bunch of illustrations, and ultimately I backed up and said, you know, the Bible explains this better than I do. And so I'm going to give you a couple of Scripture verses in succession. Don't let me talk about them or tell stories. Uh, first off, idols are lifeless. There is no life in anything that is an idol. Psalm 115 why do the nations say, where is their God? Speaking of Israel, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who made them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Meaning everybody who makes idols will ultimately come to nothing and go to the dust again. And, and their gods will not save them from that. Their gods will not protect them. Their gods will do nothing. Whereas our God speaks and acts and does as he pleases. Secondly, like so lifeless and they're powerless, Right? The gods of men, the idols, they can do nothing. Um, Isaiah 46. Man, Isaiah is awesome, by the way. I, I cannot tell you how much fun this book is. Uh, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? This is God speaking. And you got to love that line. Who are you going to compare me to or call me equal to? To whom will you liken me? that we may be compared. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. So these, these idols, anything that we worship that is not God, that is of the creation, 
they have no life and they can do nothing to rescue us. Um, and mind you, like you might say, well, I don't have a little statue to Baal or I don't have this or I don't have that. Like, like we don't have those idols. We have idols. They've just changed. And we'll talk about that toward the end. Um, we're going to go on from there. Uh, so the other thing here is that they're not close. They're not even close. They're, they're nowhere near to what God is in like his power or his grandeur, his beauty, his awesomeness. Like when you really start comparing the gods of like the idols, like, like at the time that Paul is speaking of, and even in our world, nothing comes near his level, right? Like, like it, it's like they picked something out and they didn't just pick something that wasn't God, but they picked something that was low tier compared to him. Um, most of the, well, Isaiah 40, 21 through 26, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? I can only hear Kate Anderson saying this line. Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the heaven and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows, the, blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So to kind of explain this just briefly, um, for example, like the Greeks believed that uh, humanity and the world was created out of a war between Zeus and his father, Right? And like, like the father was slaughtered and like out of his entrails, like the world was created and people came about. Like wherever his blood splattered, like people came along. Um, like not on purpose, not, not like intentionally, accidentally. And for the most part, the Greek gods were annoyed by men and they were like confused by them or frustrated by them or they would fight with them and they'd have these little weird wars where sometimes people would win, which is crazy. Um, the God of the scriptures is perfect. The God of the scriptures laid the foundations of the earth. The God of the scriptures sits enthroned in heaven. He is everything. As a dad, I, I try to be like God. I try to be like Jesus. But ultimately, I know if my children idolize me and they see God as like me, then they're seeing a lesser version. Everything that is an idol cannot compare to the real God of creation. So move on. And then finally, in, in contrast, okay? So whereas knowing an idol or relying on an idol leaves you with something that's powerless and like, like not as good, in contrast, knowing him like it is to know how complete we can be as people and like how insufficient everything else is to satisfy us. Um, to give you an idea of the, here before I dive into Paul, years ago I was working in Houston uh, as an exterminator, and I had a day that I had to dig a trench around a house. And I spent the whole day wearing a polyester suit with a shovel in 110-degree Houston heat with dust and hot and 110% humidity because Houston is hell. 
and I dug all day and I did not bring water and like, cause I worked for a really good company. They didn't provide us with water. And at the end of the day, I remember going home and I was dehydrated and I was dusty and I was dirty and I'd sweat through my clothes and everything else. And I stopped and I bought a bottle of off-brand water. And it was honestly 25 years later, the sweetest thing I have ever tasted in my life. Nothing will ever be as good as that bottle of water was, except kissing my wife. To know what it is to be complete and filled and satisfied is to know what it's like to know God. Everything else is less. Everything else is under. Paul expresses this idea when he talks about his achievements as a Jew. He's like, hey, look, I was the best Jew ever. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous for the law. I loved God so much that I persecuted the church. I did this. I did that. I followed the rules better than anyone else. And it's garbage. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the suppressing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. And actually, most, most of the time it's rubbish. And the word literally means uh, refuse or poo. Uh, just to kind of put it, we really, it's a sanitized text. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, to become becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul is saying is, to know Christ makes everything garbage. Everything else is less than or minuscule. Everything is is everything is regular tap water next to that bottle of water when I was so thirsty. Every, every other woman is, is nothing compared to my wife. Every other idol and God will leave you empty because it is powerless and lifeless, cannot fulfill you, cannot make your heart whole. Everything is not enough. That is what it is to know God. Everything is less than, and you'll never be happy with anything else. Like it's one of those accept no substitute sorts of things. Finally, like the last big idea that's in here, God reveals himself to all people in Jesus. We no longer have an excuse for our ignorance. Now watch this. Um, I'm almost word for word, Acts 17 here, right? Uh, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Um, what's he saying? So theologically, there's a big landmine here, and we're not going to step on it. Got it? Happy Mother's Day. Uh, <laughs> does that mean that God didn't count any sins? We're not talking about that. What we are talking about is there was a time when no one could know Yahweh. And God looked at him and said, they're ignorant. I'm not going to hold this against them right now. But now I've showed up. Now I have stepped into the world and, and you can know me. Um, what does that look like? Uh, I actually found this in the early church fathers. And it's kind of funny because they, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not quoting each other exactly. But uh, from 
Cyril of Jerusalem, you wrote this probably in 350 AD. Men forsook God and made carved images of men. Since therefore an image of man was falsely worshipped as God, God became truly a man. And that, that, that falsehood might be done away with. Meaning Christ became, or God became flesh in Christ because we worship stuff. And so Cyril is like, hey, God became one of us so we would have something to see and know. Right? Uh, in uh, Ephraim, uh, the Syrian, uh, this would be in 360. God saw that mankind worships created things. He put on a created body that in our custom he might capture us. This is from uh, Athanasius of Alexandria. It was one of the big, big, big name early church fathers. Again, around 350 A.D. Since the Savior has come among us, idolatry not only has no longer increased, but what there was is diminishing and gradually coming to an end. Christianity is still illegal at this point when he wrote this, by the way. And not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer advance, but what, what there is is now fading away. And demons, so far from cheating anymore by illusions and prophecies and magic arts, if they so much as dare to make the attempt, are put to shame by the sign of the cross. Why did I read those to you? It's because when God arrives as Christ, and this is different from what every other religion in the world did up until that point. People would say, oh, Zeus, he's this big guy who'd throw lightning bolts and, you know, all this other stuff. Nobody would say, hey, I talked to Zeus the other day. We went for a walk. I remember eating breakfast with Zeus on the shore after he was resurrected from the dead. Like, these are guys who are like, yeah, I knew this guy. I saw him. I walked with him. I hung out with him. Like, like we played cards once. Like, Jesus was this real person. I don't know if he played cards. Um, I, or holiness movement, he probably didn't. Uh, but um, the point being that when Christ came, like, idol worship kind of abandoned because people were looking for something. They were looking for something to worship and to know. And in Christ, they could know God because he was the perfect image and representation of who God is. And he was a God who stepped out of, crea- you know, out of the heavens, off of the mountain and amongst us so that we could come to him because he knew we could never earn our way to him. We could never, like, be righteous enough or be good enough to know him properly. And so he comes to us and fulfills what we can't do. And so, like, in Christ, we have the perfect image and we have something to know and worship. And actually, after that, the Holy Spirit fills us and we can know God, like, from the inside out. He speaks to us and he shapes our heart and he grows us and changes us. And it is amazing to experience. Like Paul said, everything else is rubbish because, because knowing Christ and walking with Christ and being in Christ is everything. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you out again on this subject. I did cover this. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Aragapus, Aeropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Um, just a little bit of irony in this, by the way. Their idol, these guys, these philosophers, their idol was how stinking clever they were. And I'll tell you, it's easy to idolize your own cleverness. I struggle with it every day. Um, because they heard about the resurrection and they said, everybody knows the idea of this is nonsense. And they didn't 
have a discussion. The thing with ideas is that ideas oftentimes are intoxicating, right? But sometimes they don't work. Whereas if you encounter something in real life, it tends to prove itself really well. And so they would say, this is our philosophy. This is what we know. Everything you're saying is dumb because this counteracts, counter, this contradicts or is contradictory to what we know is true. But Paul would be able to say, I met Jesus risen from the dead. I know these other people. I know these guys, 500 witnesses, this guy here, this guy here, this guy James who was like, executed for saying Jesus was risen for the dead, and he didn't take it back. Like, Paul had proof. But their ideas were their idols. And so he backed up and said, this is what's important. Shut up, Paul. We're not listening to anything else. They didn't even ask for proof, even though Paul said Jesus was raised from the dead. And so their idol dragged them off. They said, oh, I don't want that condor. This puppet is my friend, right? Um. So what are the big concepts here? First off, worshiping what God has made or done is not worshiping God himself. Now, hear, hear me out. This seems obvious, but it is very easy to substitute things for God. It's easy to substitute the church for God, styles of worship for God, translations of the Bible for God, particular theologies about God for God. Our jobs, which we do like, like, I, I mean, honestly, this is the wor- one of the hardest things about being a pastor. As a pastor, you look and you say, I'm doing God's work. And the work can easily become God and you begin to forget. He's behind me doing the real stuff. I'm just here. It's easy. We must step away from those things and worship God exclusively. It is particularly difficult. And that's why I opened with talking about moms. Moms, you stand in God's place as an in-between, and that's amazing. But at the same time, you're not God. And so you're blessed and wondrous and amazing because you get to stand in God's spot. And anyone who looks upon you should be jealous of that, and we should thank you and praise you that you get to show us God early. Amen? But we can't worship that. We can't worship our families. We can't worship our work. We can't worship politicians, which is part of the reason I read the Isaiah passage where it says, I plant the kings and no sooner do I plant them, but they dry up and die. It was Montana summer planting. Recreating God in our own image is also idolatry. And it's worshiping a fake God. What do I mean by this? I read an interesting essay by a pastor. Pastor. This weekend, talking about the Roe versus Wade thing. I don't want to talk about politics. I'm not trying to do that. But this person said, I have read the words of Jesus, and I believe Jesus would approve of, of abortion. Like, wow. Where'd you get that? And, like, you start reading the discussion, and it's not Jesus' words at all. It is, this is what I think Jesus would say. You following me? Um. We oftentimes, I remember when I was drunk all the time, when I was back in my, my alcoholism, I would, I would say, God shows me grace and he forgives me. And I would just keep going back to that sin. To some degree, that's true, but it's also sort of lying to myself because I can't wallow in sin and pretend that God doesn't care. Right? God loves everyone and forgives anyone. And so, like, sin doesn't even count, except for certain people, like the ones I disagree with, or Hitler, or... You know, probably Stalin, he was pretty bad, and, and you know, whoever, 
uh, yeah, whoever invented childproof bottle caps and, and like those people God hates, but like me, I'm all right no matter what I do because God's all about love. That's not really scriptural. And it's replacing the real God with an idol. Turning politicians into idols, turning money or cars or success or being the best into an idol is idolatry. Oh, I had one more. Uh, finally, to know God is to know perfection because he is perfect and he makes us new. Like nothing can ever stand in his place and everything will always make us feel empty. And emptiness we experience um, can only be filled by him. So how do we apply this? What do we do with it? First off, knowing God requires that we actually know him. You got it? <laughs> right? Like I can read books about uh, Tom Selleck, but I've never met him. I've never read a book about Tom Selleck. I just picked that name out of the sky. I've never met him. I've never hung out with him. We've never traded beard or mustache tips. Like, how do you keep your mustache so perfect? I've never done that with him. Like, I don't know Tom Selleck, but I've seen every episode of Magnum P.I. 12 times and a lot of his Westerns, so I'm pretty sure I know him. Nope. To know God is to know God. We must learn about who he is and we must commune with him. Well, how on earth do you commune with him? Well, you worship him. You talk to him. Sometimes you spend a little bit of quiet time and you listen for him. When your heart pulls you in a direction to serve him, you do it. You love people sacrificially. When you suffer, you turn around and say, this is Christ, like what Christ experienced, and I get to experience a piece of it. Like we we give things to him. We lean on him alone. We read the scriptures. We fellowship because part of how we encounter God is in other people. Isn't that crazy? Did you ever meet someone and they said something to you and you were like, wow, that was just what I needed to hear. It's almost like God was talking through them like a weird condor puppet or something. The guy saying it ain't God. God is God. And he operates the puppet. And sometimes that's me and sometimes that you, that's you. Sometimes it's mom. Sometimes it's dad. Sometimes it's a preacher. Sometimes it's one thing or another. But ultimately, God is the one behind it. Anything we love more than God is sitting in his spot in our lives. There are times when we gather for movies in my home and I have a place that I stake out and it is my spot. My son, who I love dearly, will often attempt to jump into my spot. How does that work out? I have to sit on him, or I have to move him, or I have to tickle him, or I have to do something else horrible, or we don't watch anything until he goes somewhere else, or he just goes to bed, uh, which I think is funny. Um, to sit in God's spot or to put something in God's spot in our lives is to do something like make your marriage more important than God. It's to make your parents. It's to make um, a particular political issue or... Um, an experience more important than God, and it will never, ever, ever work. And ultimately, God will either kick whatever it is out of your spot, and it'll kind of be awful, or he'll let it stay, and it'll be worse. That's Romans 1, but it's not a right now thing. Finally, Jesus is God incarnate. He shows us who God is. If you want to know who God is, look at who Christ was. And, like, look at who he really was by reading about him. Because it's oftentimes we read about Jesus and we miss the fact that Jesus did things like talk to the Pharisees and say, you brood of vipers, right? 
He walked into the temple and he threw over tables. When one man he was talking to said, hey, don't you know you're insulting us? He's like, oh, I know, and I'm going to do it even more. Jesus was serious, and he was intense, and he washed the feet of Judas, who would, like, turn him in so he could be nailed to the cross. And while he hung on the cross, after being spit on and stripped naked and whipped and beaten, and he's dying for our sins, he looks at the people around him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To know that Christ, to know Jesus himself, is to know God. And not a simple Pollyanna character, but the broad range and the awesomeness and the holiness and the love that God is. The love that he has for you and for me. So much so that everything else is a bad imitation. And so my challenge for you is, I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, My challenge for you today is, um, look at your heart and look at your life. What are the nailed at things you're worshiping that are not him? Find them and wipe them out. Kick them out of his spot. Dust it off before you, you know. Like, what are the things that are a puppet version of the real God? What are the things like the approval of people or, or trying to be the best at something or trying to win dad's pride over you or approval or, or trying to get revenge on someone you haven't seen in 20 years or whatever? Like, what sits in God's spot? Find it and wipe it out. And thank your mom for standing in God's place for him and showing him who he is in how she loved you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray those of us who are here would know you more by hearing the word preached. Um, I pray for your hand on our lives and in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to know you more every day. And particularly, specifically, that we wouldn't know a puppet version, a cheap imitation or a knockoff, but that we would know Christ and him crucified. That we would have hearts like Paul that would look at all our success and money and nice house and acclaim and appreciation of our peers or or whatever else measure of success that we could possibly have. Like, let us look at that and say, this is rubbish. All I want is Jesus. Help us to be made full and complete in him. Amen. Have a good Sunday, folks. Happy Mother's Day.